So my name is Scott Irwin. For those of you who are maybe here for the first time, I'm, I'm the college pastor at Sunnybrook. And uh, Rachel here, Vince, Rachel Vincent, and a guy named Drew Moss who's not here. He's celebrating his 10-year anniversary with his wife. So, oh, that's cute. Um, so he's not here, but Rachel and Drew work for... Rachel and Drew work for Focus, which is a campus ministry here that owns this building, actually. And so together, uh, Sunnybrook and Focus together make the table. And so we, we're here, Rachel and, and myself and Drew are here every Thursday night. And typically we teach through uh, the Bible. We just finished teaching through First Thessalonians. We're going to start teaching through uh, Ecclesiastes next Thursday. Um, but normally during a semester as we're teaching through the Bible, questions come up. And, and we don't always have time to answer all those questions, and actually not, not even not just questions that come up from the text, but also questions that come up in your life, because you guys are at a stage in your life where um, these questions need to be answered. Like, you have questions that need to be answered. And so we want to we wanna stop and pause and do that now and again, and so we have these Q&A nights um, to do that. And, and honestly, if, the reason we set out to do this is because we'd love to sit down with each of you, any of you that have a question that you're wrestling with, We'd love to sit down with you over a cup of coffee and have a conversation or hot chocolate, whatever it is you drink. Um, have a conversation that, that we could actually talk through whatever it is you're wrestling with. But uh, maybe that's not, that's not possible all the time. So we, we have this as, as somewhat a, a starting point. And, and so we have some questions that were turned in last week that we're going to walk through. Each of us is going to take one of those questions that we think is relevant to, to most of you. And then uh, after all of us have gone, we're going to take a little break. Uh, we are making more coffee, by the way. We've run out. So for those of, you that, those of you that did not get any, you get first dibs. But anyway, so we'll take a little break, and then, and then we'll come back, and we'll kind of open the floor up to you. And there's a number here uh, that uh, you can text in a question. And I realize some of you can't see that. Uh, so if you want, the number is, you ready? The number is 612 it's 405-612-9187, or Kelsey uh, either one, 612-9187, but those are questions you can send in uh, throughout the night, and and, uh, and she's going to kind of field those and, and, and give those to us, um, and the other thing I would just say is, you know, this is this really is, we, we, we want to deal with real questions, we want to deal with honest questions, um, this really isn't. The goal of this isn't to have a debate with anybody, and so we would ask for questions that aren't combative uh, intentionally, and, but we also recognize that questions come with a lot of emotion sometimes behind them, and so we want to be sensitive to that and we want to deal with that, but we would ask they not intentionally be combative um, for, for that purpose, but not that we're afraid to have those kind of conversations, but maybe maybe at a later time. So also, uh, myself and, and Rachel and, and Drew, we want to be available, and so if, if further explanation is needed, we want to make ourselves available um, to do that as well. So, with that being said, uh, we've already done the mission trip. The first question we're going to tackle, Rachel's going to tackle, and it was this question, I'll read it since you guys can't see it. It says, I have a friend, this is exactly what was written on the card, I have a friend who suffers from depression and she often experiences guilt about not relying on God and taking medication to find relief instead. How can I encourage her? Where is the line between relying on God 
and medication with mental illness? Yes, so great question. Um, I want to just start really quickly with kind of defining our terms when we say, you know, clinical depression. So what that's not talking about is I'm having a few bad days or maybe even just a difficult season of life because um, we all go through times where, you know, maybe we're just putting our head down and things are hard right now. Um, it's also not necessarily talking about anxiety, although that can go hand in hand with depression. But in answering this question, when I'm talking about clinical depression, I am talking about um, it can be so elusive, but the best word I know would just be that absolute hopeless feeling um, that is never seeming to leave. And so maybe that is going on, maybe you feel like you're you know, in a tunnel and it's never going to end, and even though perhaps things are even good in your life, you're just not finding joy in anything. Um, maybe even little tasks like getting up and going to class, that feels you know, like impossible to do. Um, so that's kind of more of what, what I'm addressing when I talk about this question. Um, I also just want to recognize that God has gifted us by giving us um, the fields of medicine and science and research. Um, and so just medically speaking, we've really come um, to understand a lot more about depression and a lot more about the brain um, in the last even 10, 20 years. And so I want to really kind of understand this from a medical standpoint. So there are two ways, basically, that we can become depressed. Um, there are um, internal things going on and external. And so I want to talk about both of those. And first of all, internally, um, just like a family could be susceptible to heart disease, for instance, families can be susceptible to depression. Um, and so that may mean nothing bad's going on in your life, um, but your brain is reacting and things are just not functioning the way that they need to function. Um, that can be genetic and can be passed down. And actually, my family is really susceptible to depression. Um, I, I lost a great uncle to suicide and I almost lost my grandpa to suicide multiple times. And I've kind of watched that play out in my family with some family members and just, you know, what a struggle that can be. Um, and so in cases like that, you know, medicine is important and it's not sinful. Um, medicine can be a gift so that your body can function properly. And just like somebody, you know, with cancer is, is going to be receiving chemotherapy to help get their body where it needs to be, um, God has, God's gifted us with medicine. And so that can be a good thing. Um, the other type of depression that can come on is a little bit harder to explain, um, and it can be circumstantial. And so I don't know if you guys realize this, but your, um, your brain will respond to what you believe. It will respond to what you're telling it. Um, so I have just kind of a couple of, of ways to explain this. Um, so with your brain responding to what you believe, let's say that I'm studying in the library and it's getting late and I, I'm leaving, I'm walking to my car, and I get an alert on my phone that says, um, somebody's on, on the loose. I don't know, some kind of danger. So maybe, you know, somebody was shot. They're trying to find this murderer. He's on campus. I'm alone. It's dark. It's night. I'm like, okay, I've got to book it. I've got to get to my car. And my friend Alec doesn't know about this alert. And he sees me and he hasn't seen me in a few weeks. So he's like, Rachel, he comes running up from out of nowhere. But I don't hear him say Rachel. All I see is this great big figure is coming straight at me. My body is saying, Danger. I don't know that it's Alec. My body's reacting on what I believe, which is that he is a danger to me. So what happens? My heart starts to race, and like my hands get sweaty, and my adrenaline goes up, and I'm ready to fight him, or maybe to run. I don't know. But um, so that's what's happening. So, but my brain is reacting. My body's reacting to what I believe. 
So similarly, we can fall into depression based off of circumstances and sometimes lies that we tell ourselves. So to give you kind of another example of that, like let's say, I am very happily married, but let's say I'm not. Let's say that I have a boyfriend. And let's say that I believe that we are soulmates and we are meant to be together and I am banking my whole life on this relationship, like everything's being built around it. I'm finding my identity in that relationship and he breaks up with me. I believe at that point that what? My life is over. I can never be happy again. Um, you know, I, I, I can't go on. I'm never going to have anybody else to love. And this relationship was the point of my life. And so now I have no purpose. So when that happens, and that spirals me into depression, um, medication may be useful in helping you know, my brain to kind of get a jolt and regulate that. But here's the problem. The problem is if all I ever do is just take medication to try to get my brain to be normal, I'm not actually dealing with the lies that I believe that cause my brain to react in the first place and to send me into this depression, if that makes sense. And so that is why it is so essential um, that we use the resources that we have. And so like, if you're a believer, I would really encourage you to find a Christian counselor, a Christian physician, people who have the same worldview as you, who can help you process and work through, okay, what maybe what lies am I buying into here that are, is causing some of this circumstantial depression? Um, and so depression itself is not a sin. Taking medication is not a sin. Um, where I will just kind of caution is that we, we can fall into um, some temptation. There are some temptations that come with depression. And so the two that I would say would kind of be the biggest ones um, are going to be for a believer um, to withdraw from your relationship with the Lord, to just not feel like reading my Bible, so I'm just not going to do it, to just not feel like praying, so I'm not going to do it. And then the other one would be to withdraw from biblical community. Um, maybe, you know, going to church, just it just feels so hard. Um, I, I just can't do it today, so I'm just going to stay home. Um, those can be the, the temptations. And so to kind of, I love the heart in this question of, first, how to understand depression, but second, how can I encourage? Um, and I also do just want to quickly note both of these people, the person struggling with depression and then the person wanting to encourage. In this particular case, they're both followers of Jesus, so that's kind of how I'm answering the question. But to the one who wants to encourage, um, first of all, you know, we can, we can look at Psalms and see there are emotions all over the place. And, and um, so many times what the psalmist will do is say, you know, why are you, you know, downcast, oh my soul? And then he starts like encouraging himself with the truth that he knows when he's a follower of, of Jesus or when God is at the center of his life that I can put my hope in God. Um, and I can remember that. And so you can reaffirm and reassure um, the truths that we know in the Bible and the truths that we know of where I, identity comes from, that when we love and follow Jesus, no matter what season we are in, no matter how alone we feel, we aren't. That God is with us, that he has not left us. And so we can encourage with those truths. We can encourage um, to, to fight the temptation of you know, wanting to withdraw. So maybe that is like, hey, you know, I know it is really, really hard for you. Can I just pick you up this Sunday? Um, and we could go to church together. Or can I just pick you up for a small group? And, and we can go together. We can do that together. Um, and then finally, just I would say never underestimate the power of a listening ear um, and, and being kind of slow to speak and quick to listen um, and encourage and, and even just walk through difficult questions like this one together. So. That's good. Thank you. I would, I would assume that all of you have had friends and, and will have friends that will wrestle with these kinds of things, and so, um, or if, if not, you will, um, and so those are, those are really helpful. One thing I didn't do was introduce the two people on the end. There's two other people here. 
So this is Morgan Weiss. She is the youth pastor at, at Sunnybrook. Jim Johnson, who is the lead pastor at Sunnybrook. Um, both of them have been here several times, many times, but they're also distinguished guests. Uh, yes. And that's uh, why I wore my baseball cap. Yes. <laughs> exercise headband. Hey, hey, hey. I didn't exercise. It's a lie. Hey, stop. <laughs> That is her boss, by the way. We have lots of those moments. Um, Stop it! <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm going to answer a question. Okay, we're going to move on. Uh, if if you have if you have a question that's kind of based on what what uh, Rachel said, let's save that for for the end. Okay, uh, or after our little break. So I'm going to move on. We want to try to answer these four real quick because we I think these. These are ones that are going to be relevant for everyone, and then we'll come back and do that. So the next one was, this is actually a couple questions turned in, and I'm going to take this one. Why, does, why doesn't God give me what I ask for, and how can, I, how can we tell if God is listening? I think, those are, I think those are questions that all of us have at some point asked, and I, especially the first one. Um, this, this one comes up probably in us when we feel like we're asking for good things. Probably not when we feel like we're asking for bad things. But... Most likely, this question comes up when we think, I'm asking for a good thing. Why wouldn't God want to give me what I'm asking for? And I think another, another question to go alongside this one that helps put this one in perspective is, why should God give us what we want? Right? And, and actually, if you keep chasing that question, why doesn't God just destroy us when we sin? Why doesn't God just remove us at the moment that we deny Him? Like those, that, that's actually a legitimate question. When you, when you kind of start chasing both, both questions, you, you at some point get to the, the bottom, which is, okay, who is God? And um, how do we know what He's like? And so, so that, that's where I go with this question is, well, how do I know what, what God is like and, and who God is like? And, and I can't know that unless I, I, that he's, been, he's revealed Himself to me. Right, so, so that's, that's where I start. It's God has revealed Himself to me. He's revealed Himself to us through His Word, through His, through Scripture, ultimately through Jesus. And so I know about God. I know what kind of God He is because of what He's revealed. And, and what He's revealed is that He is a God who created and gave, gave out of an overflow of love. Um, it's what the Bible describes. In fact, this kind of this this these four things. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration kind of tell the full story that God created um, uh, everything that He gave out of His love that we, we took and we took and abused. We used it for our own selfish purposes. And so sin came into this world and then God immediately started a plan of redemption and restoration that culminated in Jesus and His life and, and, and death and resurrection. And so because of that, I can now have a relationship with Him. And so that's, that's how we know who God is. He, he created, He gave, and he, He's a God who gives. Um, and, but He also is a God who has, has a plan. He's a God who loves, loves His children, loves us, makes it, made us in His image, but He has a plan and a purpose. And that plan and purpose isn't always something that we can know and see. And so when I want something, and I don't get that something, then I have to ask because of, because of who God has revealed Himself to be, I have to ask, okay, well, maybe God sees something I don't see. Maybe God knows something I don't know. Kind of like when my two-year-old, I've had, I have three kids and I've had three two-year-olds. 
and all of them have asked for things that, that I can't give them, right? So, like, they want candy for dinner, and I say, no, it's not good for you. And they say, yeah, it is. It's great. It tastes great. What are you talking about, Dad? This is my son. It tastes great. It's great for me. No, it's not good. It's not good for you. It's bad for you. No, it tastes great. And so I could I can continue having a pointless conversation with a two-year-old or a nine-year-old, um, or I could just say, "Son, you're going to have to trust me. Because um, I know something and I see something that I can't explain to you, and you have to just." And so I, when I when I do what's best for him, I don't really have I don't really care what he thinks about it because I know I'm doing what's best for him. And I think this this relationship with God is is similar in that. Um, when we when we see scripture and we see who God is and how He's revealed Himself to be, uh, who He's revealed Himself to be, we have to we, we we will trust that God has this plan, and and that there's always something bigger going on. And so, how I can know that He is listening is is because th- these couple of verses that, that came to mind: Proverbs three five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways, submit to him, and he will direct your paths. And then there's uh, Psalm 37.4, which says, Delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of of your heart. Wait, how do I get the desires of my heart? It says, "Ah, Delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So here's what happens. is As we begin to trust God with all of our heart, and lean not on our own understanding, as we begin to delight in the Lord, God does this thing where He transforms our desires okay, in, into Christ-like desires. And so now I begin to want the things that God wants. So then, I begin to get the things that I want. Because there are things that God is, God is changing my desires and making, and making me want the things that He wants. And so, so how I know... So ultimately, it's kind of, I reach the same conclusion with both of them that I, I can have the things that I want as I trust in the Lord and as I delight in Him He changes my desires to want the things that He, that, that he wants me to have and then I in that sense know that He's listening if my, my heart and my desires are changing uh, I trust and believe He's active and present and that's, and that's what the Bible describes Him as a very active and present God who, who actually does have an opinion about the things that we do and does have a desire for us and has expectations for us we don't like talking about it like that but he does, just like I do for my son and my kids. Um, and so that's how I would answer that question. I don't I want to throw it out if you guys want to. I would say uh, one thing that is not true that you need to be careful of whenever you think about this is don't what listen to what he said, and it's really important to know where he started and where he finished because if you don't and you go backwards, you can think, God doesn't give me blank because I don't love him enough. And there's a lot of people that even Christian people that might tell you that, that might say, well, the reason this is happening is because you just don't trust God. And whenever you trust God, I have people tell me that about marriage all the time. When you just let go and trust God, then it's just going to happen for you. And it's, that's dumb. That's really, really <laughs> dumb theology. And so I just think it's really important to make sure you don't get that backwards. He's not saying, um, it, there are some things that I think that you desire that will not be met on this earth because they can only be fulfilled yeah. with Christ in Christ. And I think that, so I just think that you need to be yeah. aware of that. 
Yeah. So that's the only thing I yeah, have. Yeah, good, good things that we want that we may not ever get. Right. And it's it doesn't mean they're bad, and it doesn't mean that you don't love the Lord. Yeah, exactly. You know, so. It doesn't mean you don't But that's where you come back to what you were saying. That's why I said, listen, because you talked about trusting the Lord with all your heart and leaning yeah. not on your own understanding. And that's yeah. whenever you have to go back to that is, no, there's this thing that I want that is good, but he hasn't given it to me. Therefore, I'm going to trust the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding. So it can't be, therefore, I'm just not. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, okay, no, I'm just I kidding. I didn't mean to say that. Tell me what you're saying. Um, that's an inside joke. Uh, she'll lend every statement with you. Know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Here's one other thing that I'll add because when I hear you describe it that way, it's a little bit of a circular reasoning to me. Delight in God; He'll give you what He desires. Premise A is that I will delight in God and get God, and I get God. So you're kind of saying, want God and you'll get God. And it see anybody else kind of go there when you said that? Okay. Now what's I think one one of you one of you went there. Okay. No, but here's no, but here's where it, here's where that actually makes a lot of sense. So a lot of you want stuff and you want God to get you stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's not by nature. Scott said I got to go back and ask who God is. Mm-hmm. And God by nature is not a genie in a bottle. So if you want God to get stuff, then you don't get God. If you want God to get God, then you'll get God. It really goes fundamentally back. That's why you can have no other idols before him. He, he doesn't take kindly to that. He doesn't like to be used. Imagine if I said, hey, I want you to be my friend because I want him to be my friend. I don't want, really want to be your friend. I just want you to get to him. How would you sorry you're like No, but how would you how would you feel? The only reason why the only reason why I'm pretending to want you is because I really want that. How many of you like that? How many of you go, I'm totally cool with that? No, you go, don't use me. How many of you like to be used? Right? No, and if you do, you're sick. No, but you are, you're sick. Now imagine what it's like when it's God. So going back to that analogy, when Scott one of the, the, the best part of that whole thing that Scott said was it really asks you who is God? The creator of the universe, the one that knows all, the one that designed you, the one that knows it's best, and he's controlling all of these things. And so when you say, well, wait a second, if I have to delight in him and I get him, but how do I get my Xbox? That's what I want. How do I get my wife? That's what I want. How do I get my job? That's what I want. Or my parents to get back Or my together. parents to get back. I mean, you, you listen to really things. Deep. World peace. Yeah. Right? So if that's what you want most, then that is essentially your God. And if you won't be happy without it, and then God is an idol to get X, and you're screwed from the beginning on yeah. that one. And so that's why you got to go back and say, who is God? That is so critical. And then you get, the, are you ready? This is the ugly part. And then you got to be honest. Actually, I don't really want God. Mm-hmm. And very few Christian people have the guts enough to admit that statement. And that can be admitted in two ways. One of them is, and I love this line, it's from your cousin actually, um, I don't know if I want God, but I really want to want Him. And I, I'll never forget that line, she said it, in, Rachel said that in my office, and I just thought, me too. <laughs> you know, and I was the professor, and I felt weird saying that, but I'm like, I know exactly what you're describing. I don't know if I want Him all the time, but I like want to want Him. So you'll either be honest with that and realize you're still a little bit of a child, there's a little bit of trace in all of us. There's a trace of trace in all of us. Um, or you're going to be really, really honest, which is, yeah, I'm using this whole religion thing to get what I really want. 
Good luck with that. You're opposing the creator of the universe. Yeah, Sucks to be you. Good question, but this one is probably bigger right now than in, in what we're dealing with. So Morgan, this is yours. Oh, you okay. Yeah. Uh, here's the question that was turned, a couple of them actually combined. As a church, uh, where should we stand on Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter movements? How do we engage Christians? How do we engage Christians who seem to fall on one side or the other? How do we keep from getting frustrated by all this? How do we act biblically and Christ-like towards the, the, the racial tension? It's a big question. Big. So, a big question that we're supposed to answer really shortly. So, I'm not going to give you all the details and all the history and all the everything, but I'm going to give you just a few points. And actually, stole most of these from Drew Moss, who said them to our church and did a great job crafting them, so I'm just expounding on those. So, that should be said. Um, first thing is that I, I've studied, I've got, I've, I love, I'm really interested in like the civil rights movement in general, um, and passionate about that. And so I've gotten to study that a lot. And there are some, a lot of similarities with the Black Lives Matter movement and civil rights movement. But there's also a lot of differences. And I think it's important as a Christian that you know this because it's important to know it. Like one of the biggest differences that I think is important for you to know is where they originated from. Black Lives Matter um, stemmed from an issue that happened where it was birthed was that there was a woman that was very frustrated with the um, Trayvon Martin case that happened in 2013 after the shooting and there was a verdict that the shooter got let go and that's where that birthed from so it was injustice and it should it is it that is completely wrong I completely understand why something was birthed out of that movement but the civil rights movement was primarily birthed out of the black church and, and the black community within the church. And the reason why that's very different is because um, the civil rights movement, primarily the reason behind that, that there should be equal rights for everyone, is that we believe as God followers that God created human life in his image. And that is very, very important. And that should be the basis behind what we believe about this issue, specifically this Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter issue, should be that we believe that God created people in his image for his glory and that they were created for that purpose. And so when any, and this is one of the things that Drew said, when any um, life is taken unjustly, that the, our first response should not be critical, should not be picking sides, should not be trying to discern what was right and what was wrong in that moment. Our first response should always, always, always be sadness. Because a, a life that God created for his glory and for that purpose in his image was taken un, unjustly from this world in a, in a way that is broken in a broken world. And so sadness should always be our first response. So I think when it talks about how should we respond, that's something I would challenge you to do first, um, is to really under, like go back to that idea. Wow, someone created in the image of God has just been taken from this earth because of its brokenness. And let that undo you a little bit. Um, that's what I would say you should do first. The second thing I would say is in Romans 12... Um, it says this, love in action. It says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another. This is primarily about um, the church, the people within the church community, okay? Honor one another about, above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your, spirit, your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Um... So that's, I want to say specifically out of that text, the idea of rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn is a big deal and is a biblical deal. And so I think whenever I think of, we did this, we did a podcast actually, and it's complicated, but where me and Jim and actually Arnisha and then another one of our good friends from Sunnybrook, we all got to get together and talk about this issue. And one of the things that was said was whenever a tragedy happens, I don't know if any of you guys have this, but let's say, okay, there's a big earthquake in Oklahoma, and let's say you're from Texas. Your parents might have called you and asked if you're okay. Or when there were, the crash happened last year um, at OSU um, on the... Homecoming. At Homecoming, yeah, sorry. At Homecoming right out here on Main Street they, and Hall of Fame, one of the things they said at the game was, students, please call your parents and tell them you are okay because the hospital is overloaded with phone calls because they're trying to call you to make sure you are okay and because you're in the stadium, you're not getting their phone calls. And so they were telling you, like, people are trying to make sure you're okay because of this tragedy that happened. And we talked about this, and we talked about how, you know, like Arnisha was talking about, my family reached out to me. I wish the church had reached out to me. And I think that's really important, Arnisha, as my sister in Christ, that when something happens to a, a black person that is a tragedy and an injustice and a crime, that I should be reaching out and asking Arnisha how she is doing with this. How are you processing this? Can I listen? Can I be there for you? What, what Rachel said about being quick to listen and slow to speak is really, really important. I would challenge you. It seems like when these things happen, social, social media goes crazy. And I would really challenge you to be very careful about what you say and do not say on social media. Um, saying something that is true, that is a statement, is one thing. Going into a response with someone else back and forth is a whole other thing. And I think that really typically when we speak on social media, most of the time, especially if it's in a response to something, most of the time it's because we are quick to speak and slow to listen and we don't even care about understanding. Okay? So it's, I, I would just really challenge you to be quick to listen and I would challenge you to, um, to reach out to your brothers and sisters um, to see how they're doing. And then um, the, last, the last thing I wanted to just touch on with this specific issue is that one of the fundamental components of the gospel is the idea of reconciliation and unity. And reconciliation between us and God and with us and our relationships with one another. Um, I heard somebody, and I can't, I tried to find it and I couldn't find it, but I did not say this. Somebody else did. But it was the idea of moving away from the curse of Babylon and, to, and towards the blessing of Pentecost. And that idea is that the curse of Babylon is everybody, their language was all messed up and it was divisive. Um, the blessing of Pentecost, I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's when um, there are believers that come together in this upper room and the Holy Spirit comes down and actually the, the church is birthed in this moment. 
because the power of the Holy Spirit comes over people and they become united. And one of my, my most favorite passages in all of Scripture, actually, is from Acts 2. And it's after this has happened, when the church has just been birthed, and it talks about this. It says, all the believers were together and they had everything in common and they shared with one another as any had need. And it goes on to explain the dynamic of the church, which is this unified body of believers, of people. Um, And I just think that's beautiful because what makes us similar as the people of Christ is Christ. And that's thicker than any sort of difference that we might have. Like, I'm trying to explain this. Like, I am closer to... I am closer to a sister or a brother in Christ than I am to a family member that does not know the Lord um, because that's what bonds us together. And so I just think that unity is a big deal. And I think that um, as we care for one another, like the church calls us to care for one another, you can read about that in Ephesians 2. There's all sorts of places I can give you to read about that. Um, As the church cares for each other like they're called to care for one another, that becomes a testimony and a witness to the world about about our God. And that, that, I believe reverts back to the idea that, yeah, we should be paying attention absolutely to this Black Lives Matter movement and to this Blue Lives Matter movement um, because there has been wrong that's been done to um, black people in our country. It's just a fact. Okay, You learned that in history when you're like in fifth grade, right? We know this. Um, And there's, there's prejudice and there's racism that still happens in this broken, awful world. Okay? Um... Um, that's full of sin. And so I think that we are called to pay very close attention to what the movements are standing for, and I think it's important that we hold up this book as our truth and what we go back to. So, And then I think caring for one another and listening to one another is a very important thing. So those would be kind of my two cents on that issue. You guys can add some stuff. I didn't ask if you know what I mean, but you guys can add things (laughs) if you want to. Okay, except for that. Okay. Good. <laughs> Good. Uh, you you said it well, so I don't have anything to add. But but we can, if you guys have questions, shoot them to Kelsey and we'll and we'll talk through them. Um, here in a second. So I want to get to this last one. There, take a little. Break. I guarantee you, what you're thinking on that one is there's more to the issue, which Morgan knows. Yes, that's why I said. So that nobody's at the gonna. Nobody's gonna. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we could we there's could talk about that ad nauseum. So it's way outside the scope of this in terms of it. So what she's giving mm-hmm. is kind of some really overarching things. I think the one thing that I would add to what Morgan said is just that we just, we need to remember that the agenda, this is kind of lead into what I'm going to talk about here uh-huh. in a second, but like our agenda is actually Jesus and his kingdom and his work. And that should bring benefit to everyone. And it means that I'm going to be a critic of a lot of things, but I'm going to do it from this perspective and from Jesus's perspective. And that's why I would, I would hold on to any cause, any cause, any cause, not as tightly as the cause of Christ. That's where we get into trouble. That's where Christians get into trouble. Where all of a sudden they have a cause that trumps the cause of Jesus. And that's when you know you're already in trouble. Yeah. That's good. Okay, we'll move on to this last one. It has to do with uh, voting. How do I vote when neither candidate loves God? What does the Bible say about participating in the elections? And Jim is going to tackle this one. Yeah, this is a great one for me because, one, I'm Canadian. (laughs) And number two, I have never voted in my life. I have never voted. And I actually, I don't know, I I may vote someday. I have until uh, April of next year. 
to get my U.S. citizenship, at least that's kind of that, that first big window before my green card uh, does its first 10-year expiry thing. Um, and so who knows? Uh, I think I'll be an American in about a year and a half. And then that'll 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 fundamentally change everything, because then I'll know everything, and I'll know. But I mean, uh, so I've never voted. That's kind of an interesting idea. Obviously, that I would change if I really believed that voting was essential and voting was a part of the Christian's obligation. Then I would probably have a different attitude towards that. So that says something in and of itself, right there. Um, and I'll begin with what I just said. Uh, when we talk about politics, and I think the two questions were. Neither of them really love Jesus, so how am I supposed to vote? And then what should a Christian's attitude, what does the Bible say about this? Um, Interestingly enough, uh, the Bible really doesn't say a lot about this, and one of the primary reasons why was because democracy wasn't a way that the biblical authors understood or, or, uh, or acted. And so what you and I get to do now is ask a question that the Bible doesn't know about. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't know about it. God knows about it, because God knows all things. But if you were to say to Paul... How should I vote? He would, what do you mean vote? Well, you know, because I'm 18. <laughs> Paul would go, well, I still think you're a child, but he would have a lot of questions. Why, why, how am I supposed to deal with this question? Um, and so you need to recognize that the Bible doesn't speak in those terms, okay? Then um, we you and I have to come along and say, okay, so that I've been given the responsibility to participate in the political process in which I'm a part of, i.e. the United States of America, okay, that's where we are. And is it responsible for me to be an active, engaging part of this, right? And the majority of people would, would, would I think, argue yes. That's why you have the, uh, they will at least argue yes. Uh, we still have major problems with people not turning out and voting. Um, but this year, apparently, more than any other year, people are going, why bother, I don't like anybody, okay? Now, I don't know if that's you. I don't know if that's you, but I'm already getting a bunch of nods. I don't know. So one of the questions, and we dealt with this on a couple of podcasts, is that is it a Christian thing for a person to, A, vote for someone that they have a hard time with, right? Because that's dilemma number one. What if you don't agree with Hillary Clinton's politics? What if you don't agree with Donald Trump's politics? Then is it necessarily unchristian to vote or or, uh, unethical or is it uh, not a Christian idea to vote? Can you vote for somebody that you don't agree with? Okay. And that's, that's a very interesting question in and of itself, because if that were what I would be doing, I don't know who I'd ever vote for, just to be honest with you. If I were to sit back and go, okay, listen, um, I can only vote for someone in which I completely agree with everything they agree with. To me, the voting process has some serious problems, if that's what you're doing. I don't think there is a biblical answer... I may get in trouble. I'm speaking for Jim. Okay, I'm not speaking as a, uh, this is Sunnybrook's policy, so I'm just speaking from my own perspective. Um, I genuinely believe that if you and I sat down and had a conversation, and I found out what mattered to you most, um, and, then, and then I even cared about the exact same things, okay? So you describe... He's being flipped. It's just so good. Yeah, okay. keep going. Good. Um, still not good to d- interrupt me, but um, oh. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I am gonna. I am kidding. I'll I will you. take care of him. <laughs> okay, so you and I get into this big conversation, and you have all these things that matter most, and you say, "I really believe that the Democratic Party are the ones that can answer these questions." Okay, yeah, I know. I can. Listen, we're in Oklahoma. I know you hate the Democrats, but let's say you're a Democrat, and so you're really, really strong, and that's exactly what you believe. And I would go, "Okay." 
Like, I disagree with you, let's pretend I'm on the other side of this, and I would say I really think the way to answer these questions that both you and I share. How many of you care for uh, those who are disenfranchised? Raise your hand. How many of you care about those who are poor? How many of you care about uh, equal pay for equal work? How many of you care about, right? You care about all those things. So it's not a matter of, this is a little bit of the game that happens in the political arena. You're on the other side. You don't care about This is how we talk. And if we're going to stop and listen, that's a great way to kind of describe everything we're talking about tonight. If you're going to stop and listen, the truth is you and I can be on the opposite side of the political aisle or the political spectrum. If we're going to be honest, one of the ways in which you know you've got a problem in this area is when you only know how to demonize the other side. And I say that as a confession because I'm really good at doing that. I really do. I have been deeply embarrassed at the things that I've said because I'm really good at making the other side look stupid. And that just shows that I am blind to my own prejudices in regards to this particular area. So if my only way of dealing with this is to go, no, your side doesn't get it. You guys are idiots. You guys, it's the end of the world. Something's wrong. So here's one of the things that I would say that all Christians should hear. Don't become unchristian in the political process. Don't become unchristian throughout it. Like, have you lost the ability to listen? Have you lost the ability to look at something from somebody else's perspective? Have you lost the ability to critique your own group of people? Like, can you critique your own group of people? What I've been kind of having a little bit of, like, fun watching this whole process unravel... Uh, if you look on my Facebook, and I did about eight years ago, last time I was on Facebook, um, I posted it this way, I'm a political agnostic, which means I don't know if politics exists or actually work, okay? And I love politics. Truly, I love, I love politics, I just think it's, I think it's a bit of a joke, right? I think it's a bit of a joke. I'm also grateful for the country that I live in. Like, I'm a conflicted weirdo on this issue. I'm incredibly grateful. So grateful. So for the people that kind of dog it, I want to go, where else do you want to go? So I'd really be careful dogging it. And then for the person that's like, yeah, we can do nothing wrong. Seriously? Have you not seen how messed up we are? And, you know? And I think that this is actually the beauty of the Christian's response. Not just the contrarian that gets to hate everybody. That's not what I'm actually talking about. But can you look and say, listen... Like, since our agenda and our ideal is neither blue state nor red state, I may associate with one of those more than the other, okay? But neither of those by themselves advance the cause of Jesus Christ. You know that. They don't. They really don't. And that is where my, and this is what I love about the political process, is it forces me to be able to talk about, hey, by the way, where are your true allegiances anyway? That's why I love politics is because it gets to expose, oh, really, so you're going to freak out if X gets in. And you're going to be really, really overly excited if Y gets in. I was at Mount Zion. Do you know the church down here in town? I was at Mount Zion um, on the Wednesday after the election in 2000 and, would it have been four? No, it would have been eight. 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 It would have been eight. So that Wednesday, after Barack Obama had been elected, I was at Mount Zion uh, Baptist Church, which is a very African-American church. 
And I'm not a big fan of some of the policies of our president. Grateful for him in many, many ways. Pray for him in many, 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 many ways. Okay? But I'll tell you, on that day, in that church, I have never been more proud to be a part of the whole thing. I just remember sitting there and people were so excited about the president and they were just so, and it meant more than just Barack Obama. It was so, and I sat there for a moment just kind of reveling in the bigness of God as Morgan was describing all the injustice that had been done. And my small little opinion about I disagree with Barack Obama on X meant nothing to me at that moment. I realize there is something much bigger and greater that is happening in this moment. And I would say, can you do that? Like, can you humble yourself in that sense? That's why I really think God orchestrated that. I was kind of leading a prayer for a dedication of the building that uh, we were blessed to be a part of. And I was like, God, thank you for bringing me here. Because it has totally skewed, that one moment has totally skewed how I've prayed for our president these last eight years. And by the way, have no problem critiquing. And I have no problem praying for. And then when I feel somebody else is being completely disrespectful, saying, hey, you really shouldn't talk about the president that way. Oh, you agree with him? No, not on that issue. You still shouldn't. You're a Christian. You shouldn't talk. You can talk truthfully. Hear me. I'm not talking about don't ever say the truth or don't ever critique. But don't ever lose the fact that you're supposed to season your language with salt don't ever forget the fact that you're supposed to trust God with these great big factors. So can you do that? And that is why I would tell you, I think there's a tremendous amount of freedom in Christ for us to vote who you want to vote for. I, I wish I could tell you, here's the only person you should ever vote for. The older I get, the more that I realize that that really, really matters, but that God is the one that ultimately matters. I think it is important for you to do your part. I think it's important for you to be educated and to be intentional and to do it for really good reasons. And I hope that when you and I get into a debate, whether I can convince you or you can convince me that when we have done it, we have acted like Christ, we have reasoned like Christ, and to the best of our ability, then we can even walk away because our brotherhood together is a whole lot bigger than red versus blue. And if the church begins to splinter apart over something as silly silly as Clinton or Trump, then we really don't get Jesus. We really don't get him. And I also believe, just really quickly, I also believe that not voting is actually your right to. And I even think you can not vote and still complain about it. Or critique it, not complain. I think you can actually not vote and still offer a critique. Some people say, if you don't vote, then you can't offer a critique. Why? I think I can actually watch. <laughs> no, but I think I, honestly, I think just the law. I, I know why they say that. Don't no, but no, but I can critique the fact that there was nobody worth voting for. I can offer that critique, can I not? I can offer that critique. But okay, good. We're gonna take a little break, and then we'll come back and throw it open. You guys, three minutes. <laughs> Turned in that was given to us um, uh, that we will we'll start with. The question is, and I would have it up here, but we lost internet connection, so I don't have any connection. Is um, is just a, it's kind of a simple but profound question. Why do you believe what you believe? 
why do you believe what you believe? This question, and Jim's gonna start start us off. Yep. Um, first of all, one of the things with that particular question that I find fascinating is how we answer it will give us a little bit of a hint of how we look at the world. So going back to our worldview idea. Um, so I would argue that the majority of us in this room right now believe that we believe what we believe because we have been sociologically conditioned. I bet you that would be the majority of us. Why do you believe what you believe? Well, I believe what I believe because here's my culture and here's my situation so that when you go into another culture, like I was in Japan uh, seven days ago, okay? So on this night seven days ago, I was in Japan. None of them believed what I believed for the most part. 99% of them did not believe what I believe. Why? Well, because they were conditioned that way, and I live in America, and I was conditioned this way. Right? Now, I don't believe that anymore, actually. Now, what I'm not arguing is that social conditioning doesn't take place. But to say that all is social conditioning fails to recognize that there is something else that is actually going on. So I'll take it to a very personal level. And my, my, my personal response to that two questions is, first of all, I believe what I believe because I believe it, and I don't fully understand why. And that might be, uh, that might bother you. I can see some of you kind of looking at me squinting, like, what did you just say? And I get it. I believe what I believe because I believe it, and I don't actually know why. And here's how I got to that answer, okay? Um, I don't believe what I believe what I believe, in terms of that there is a God, and there is Jesus, and the Bible is true. All of those things that I really, really strongly believe. I don't, I don't believe it because um, I'm smarter than you. And let's say you didn't believe it. I don't believe it because I'm smarter than you. If you were smart like me, you'd believe the same thing. So that's not why I believe in God, is because I'm smarter than people who don't believe in God. I also don't believe that I believe in God because I'm better than or more moral than. And if you were moral like I was moral, then you would actually believe this. So you're bad, you don't believe in God. I'm good, I do believe in God. <laughs> so I don't believe it's a matter of intelligence, and I don't believe it's a matter of moral goodness. I don't believe it's just a matter of family, because here's what's interesting. My family, my grandma and my grandpa, and my grandma and my grandpa, all went to hell. My dad comes from a family of ten children, nine of them are either on their way to or waiting for the second judgment and they will all go to hell. So my mom, and my mom comes from seven, same thing. My dad, my dad is the only believer in his family. My mom is the only believer in her family. If it's social conditioning, then why aren't they like my grandparents? And the answer is the Holy Spirit did a freak old work on their heart. How and why? I don't know if I can just go, here's why. Here's how. I don't understand it, actually. Jesus says this in John 3, and I've really held on to this a lot, especially when I think about how grateful I am for the fact that my parents said yes, whereas in all my aunts and uncles and all of my grandparents and all of my cousins said no. Jesus says that, the, that, that God or the Holy Spirit is like the wind, and it blows wherever it chooses, and it does whatever it wants. So I share the gospel with people, and I hope that you accept it. You don't know who Jesus is? I would dedicate a lot of the, my time for the next few weeks sitting down with you and trying to help you understand who God is, who Jesus Christ is, your brokenness without Him, your need to accept Him. And then I will look at you and I'll say, are you ready to make a decision? And something has to trigger in your head 
and I can't trigger it by, by having a really good argument. And I can't trigger it by being really passionate or having a really cool story. It's the reason why a lot of those decisions that many of you may have made at camp about five years ago, four years ago, you're now beginning to rethink. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Right? Why? Because in the end, and I don't, I don't think it was youth minister's fault, I, I still send my kids till they're older, but I would still send my kids to those camps, but I would say, listen, what has, is happening there is going to be the start of something that you're going to have to go back and look at what you did, and look at what you did, and look at what you did. But if you were to ask me, why do you believe, I would say, I don't exactly know why. I can give you some reasons why I believe what I believe. I can give talk about why the Bible, I believe the Bible is true, and why it makes sense to me that there is a God. But that that can with the, literally the connecting point in German theology, it's called the Ankunufungspunkt. The connecting point, yeah, it's a great word. But the connecting point, it's literally the part around the button, is what that word is. And that part there, I don't fully understand. It is a little bit of a mystery. It's why when I share the gospel with someone, I pray, pray, pray that their heart might be opened. Now, I know what you're thinking. So then why doesn't God open everybody's heart? That's not your question. You just wanted to know why I believe what I believe. <laughs> no, but I don't know the answer to the other one. I don't. <laughs> Rare form, Jim. What, what, I, what, I would, what I would also say is that um, it, there, are, there are things that we can read and study and there's things that we can find evidence for and, there, and there's reasons to believe what we believe right and, and so and also at the same time there are experiences that can that we can have that can that can be signs and point us in this direction of yeah I think something bigger is taking place and so um, you know th there's a great book by the way written by a guy named Tim Keller called Reason for God in which he describes he walks through objections to the faith and kind of walks through uh, these answers and, and if you know Tim Keller he is a pastor at a church in, in um, New York so he speaks with great biblical understanding and knowledge but he also has a philosophical bent he, he's a he's a C.S. Lewis -ite. Um, but and so he does a really good job of answering questions and kind of really wrestling with bigger things so he walks through these objections and he walks through kind of um, tenets of, of the faith or, or reasons to believe and that would be a great resource that if you are really wrestling with why you should believe in God, what, why Jesus really is worth giving your life to, I mean, that, that would be a great resource that can help and guide to that process but what Jim is saying is true <laughs> you can hand that book to somebody who does nothing you can hand that book to somebody who changes their life you can hand that book to somebody and they read it and go eh. and then later on it, God uses that to help take a step closer to Him. I mean, there's just there's a, there's a, there is a it's like the wind. It's like the wind. I, I think I, I think the analogy is really helpful yeah. for me because Jesus it really shows me my limited ability. Right? I can fly a kite in it. I can't control it. Yeah, that's John yeah. three. So way. beyond your control. Yeah. yeah, and that's why when I first came to a book before uh, he wrote his book uh, Keller, which I loved, the reason for God. See, that book helps me, help, helps me go stronger in what I believe, yeah. right? But I believed it before I read it. Right. 
And I remember the first time I read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Phenomenal book, but I already believed. And I got a bunch of atheist friends. I grew up in a country where not a lot of people knew who Jesus Christ was. And so I, I, I first, when I got that book, I'm buying it for everybody going, I think I can convert everybody. <laughs> All they need is this book, because if you read this book, and I remember giving it to my atheist brother-in-law, and he went, that was a stupid book. What do you mean it's a stupid book? It explains everything. And nothing from him. Nothing from him. And that's when I went, what is, like, what's the disconnect? <laughs> I would just say, if uh, kind of in that same vein, if you're already like a believer who's maybe struggling with doubt, and and maybe asking that question even of yourself that I am a believer, but why you know why do I believe this? Um, we have some really great resources over here. Um, Unbreakable by Andrew Wilson is is absolutely phenomenal. Yep. Um, five bucks, but does. but so many times just recognizing that doubt can be part of the Christian life, and, and it's what we do with it and how we respond to it. That, that is important. Um, and I know for me, just coming back to the, the resurrection and the evidence of that, another really great book is How Can I Be Sure? Just to explain a little bit of the difference, this How Can I Be Sure is for anybody. Um, and, and then the other book, Unbreakable, um, is kind of, Unbreakable is assuming that you do believe in Jesus and that you're and using that, and, and, yeah, and that you're using that as a starting point. Um, whereas that other one, I would say, if, if you do not believe, would be a great one to pick up. Can I tell a story real fast, Scott? Nope. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. No, I'm not. I will not. I will no, not. do it. Okay. Please. So um, I did, it's one of my favorite stories ever because it was one of those times where I was able to share my faith and to challenge someone to believe. And as I'm thinking through with him, I'm becoming more sure of what I believe at the exact same time as I was watching him kind of come to faith in a really complicated and deep way. I just looked at this guy named Kevin that I loved, and I said, Kevin, will you accept Jesus after I've shared the gospel with you? And I, I just, will you accept him? And he said, no. <laughs> and I said, why not? And he looked at me and he said, because I don't want to be a sucker. And I said, what do you mean I don't want to be a sucker? And he said, well, like I'm a really intelligent guy, and I've got like a lot of degrees, and it feels like you're asking me to step out on a cloud. And I like the fact that I'm standing on solid ground. And so I just, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can step out on the, you seem to like clouds. I can't step out on that cloud. And I looked at him and the Holy Spirit gave me a word. And the Holy Spirit said, and this is what I, I said to him, what if you already are a sucker? Like what if you already do believe something and it's wrong? Can I say what he said? And he goes, Looks underneath him because clouds. He goes, shit. <laughs> he did. Those were his exact words. And then he, that was his exact word. And I'm not kidding. He wrote me a long letter after that that I had ruined his life. And then a year after that, he accepted Christ and he is faithful to this day. Okay? And so what I wanted him to see, I get goosebumps thinking about it, because what I wanted him to see was, don't tell me I'm the one in the cloud and you're on solid footing. No. Why do you not believe? Why do you not believe? And let's go after that one. And that is when Kevin began to realize, wow, there is a veracity and a strength to our face, faith. And that totally set me in a completely different direction, even in terms of boldness to share my own faith. When I was able to look at him and say, hey, dude, what if you're already wrong? 
Like, don't look at me like I'm the one taking a step of faith. No. If there is a God, you're in serious trouble, dude. If Jesus Christ died for your sins and you chose another way, you're in serious trouble. So I love that in terms of a... you got to pick. I'm just going all in with Jesus. I really am. And I'm more and more comfortable with that all the time. Okay. We've got... We've had two, not, two questions that deal with um, women in leadership and what the Bible says about it. So here's one. Uh, women, it's, 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 it seems to be the Bible teaches women can't be an official leadership in the church, and yet Paul seems to be dealing with cultural influences there. How do we, how do we understand this? Here's another one. Why does the Bible tell women to submit to men? And why do some churches bar women from leadership positions? So... Any women want to take that question? <laughs> well, first of all, the Bible does not tell women to submit to men. No, it, it tells, says in Ephesians 5. Yes, go for it. Yeah, it tells wives to submit to their husbands. It doesn't say women submit to men. So I don't know where you got that information. And it calls all of us to submit to each other. Right, in the context, right. In the And even in, in the context of that passage, it's... People describe it as a race to the bottom. It's the idea of, I love my wife like Christ loves the church, and submit to her, and then she submits to me, and then I submit to her, and it's, it's like a race to the bottom. So even that passage is kind of different than different than um, maybe you've heard or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people... So what was the other question? Well, uh, and you've actually taught this, taught on this, right? So women in leadership and women. In, yeah. In, so based on what the Bible says, is that cultural? Should we? Is is Paul speaking for all people at all times, or is it? Like in Timothy. Timothy two. Yeah. Um. Timothy two. Well. Yeah. <laughs> and there is like specific cultural things to most of Scripture, actually all of Scripture. So there's that, but there's also this idea. Um, but this is a personal, again, this is a personal preference. Maybe not, I'm not probably speaking for Sunnybrook on behalf of Sunnybrook. This is I, not the Lord. Yeah. Um, I would personally believe that women are able to be in leadership positions, positions of leadership in the sense of, and, and I've struggled through this a little bit with, so I am a minister at our church. Rachel's a minister for the table. And so do we have, do I have a responsibility given to me by the Lord to lead any men in our church. And, well, and well, if they're younger than a certain age, is that okay? Right? And that's what people, it's like, they're boys, it's okay. But what about, like, the boys' dads when they come and ask me questions? So then do I even, like, give them any sort of insight, like, insight or, or advice or, like, b- biblical advice, things like that? Do I, am I allowed to speak truth, right? And I don't know, it's kind of like a weird, it gets real weird real quick. And so that's kind of where it's, it's, boiled down for me, so that's where I would say I do believe women are allowed to have leadership positions in the church. I do believe I have responsibility to speak truth and to lead the men in our church to a certain extent. Now, I don't believe a woman, and this is personal again, I don't personally believe a woman should be a uh, lead pastor of a church, and my reasons for that have to do with eldership and leading a congregation, and I believe one of the things he said about the cause of Christ is... um, Something that I really, I believe a lot when it comes to the role of women um, in the church, um, which is people like to ask this question a lot because we're all about women's rights and, um, which is a very defensive movement, by the way, Um, very on the defense. But 
I am more, and so I say this a lot because it's one of my people I look up to says it. They say I am um, a lot less concerned with the role of women and a lot more concerned with the cause of Christ. And so I believe, like preaching, speaking, I believe those things are okay. I believe I feel called and gifted by God to do those things, and so I do those things. But um, if that causes someone to stumble in crazy ways that they can't escape, I mean, I would, well. Maybe I, yeah, I would probably step down and not do those things in some, well, it just depends. It kind of depends, unless they're just really screwed up in their opinion. Anyway, uh, just, it gets really complicated. It just gets really complicated, but I do need you to know this. I have people. because you're preaching. Yes. They're messed up. Yes. And I have to, and I have to tell you this. If you are a woman and you listen to me only, sorry, if you are a woman and you listen to me only, if you're a woman and you listen to me only because I'm a woman, you're pretty screwed up too. Like, that's, not, that's a really bad reason to listen to somebody. And I have people, and this drives me crazy, and I hope none of you guys have done it. I don't remember any of you guys doing it, but... Uh. Um, but if you, were, if you were to come up to me after I speak, and it was just like, I am infatuated with you. And the reason I'm infatuated with you is because you're a woman, yeah. and you spoke the Word of God. Like, that's great. Like, I am glad that I'm a woman and I speak the Word of God. And you could do that, too. We can all do that. You just know the Word of God and then you speak it. I mean, it's not hard. It's not a hard thing to do. You know? And it's not a hard thing to do. And I, and I would encourage you to do that. But I, there are people that have told me, like, when I preached a sermon, that it was a great sermon. And their, their basis for that is because I'm a woman. And it just feels like that's a really sorry... It's like, okay... So you missed Christ in everything I said because me being a woman was the only thing you could think about, you know? And so I just would think that's, I don't know, these things are all very random. I don't know if they help answer your question. I do think there's also things about, like, women being silent in that passage, and I think that it, that's referring to, like, a way of, of living and a way of life. Um, being submissive, I think, is something that we're called to do as a Christian person. Um, but I have no pro- I don't have a problem saying... I will speak the truth, and I will also, I will also feel extremely convicted if I feel like I have overstepped the boundary with someone. Um, I, I, mean, I think so. I, I think so many times we have a misunderstanding of this idea of submit, and all we want to do is focus on a woman's role instead of actually talking about okay, you know, submission, like you said, submitting to the church, submitting to one another, you know. And I can tell you, like, just from personal experience, I mean, in my marriage, like, the fact that I, I'm going to submit to my husband, um, he, he, that is such a great responsibility on him, he does love me like Christ loved the church, and his call is to die for me, it is not this thing where, you know, Rachel just does whatever Ryan says, and everything that he wants goes, and he's the king of the castle. That's not how it works at all. Um, if anything, I get my way more because he realizes, you know, the importance of um, the fact that he's going to answer to God for, for serving his family. And that's what true leadership is, you guys, is service. So I just, I think that there, um, I think it's been abused, obviously. I mean, that, that's been a huge thing. It's been um, abused and women have been oppressed by that. And that is wicked and that is evil and it is wrong. Um, but I think we've kind of taken it and swung it the other way um, and not really realizing, um, you know, what, what a good gifting that can be. Because I guarantee you, if anybody comes in my home and watches the way that we imperfectly live this out, but trying to live this out and trying to, you know, honor God in this way, nobody's saying, oh, that poor oppressed woman. They're saying, wow, like, this is really a cool thing, and everything about this is is flourishing in this family. And Yeah. 
And I would also say, sorry. No, no, no. Um, like that is part of having the idea of being submissive is part of that is part of having Christ formed in you. And so, if you want Christ formed in you, then you're going to have to get over some of that, you know. And so, that idea that you're going to hold on to this idea that a woman must be this, this, this. And I would ask you you to think about where you're getting your ideas from. And you're probably getting them from the culture around you. And then whenever it talks about womanhood and specifically in the Bible, there are several different types of women in the Bible. Um, but in like in Proverbs, it's a woman who fears the Lord. That's the woman that's, that's to be praised. Um, when you look at in, in Genesis, when it talks about the idea of the woman as a helper, the word that's used for helper is the word that's used of God when he helps his people. And when I think of, like when I think of a leadership of a woman, I naturally think of my, like my mother, and I naturally think of my grandmother. And if you think what they did was any small thing, then you don't know them. You just don't know them. Because they, they can, my, my, my nana, by submitting to my papa's leading, um, she, she helped raise, probably did primarily the majority of the raising of my of my uncles and my and my mom and my aunt and who all love the Lord and are following the Lord and I would say the same thing of my mom you know my dad is the vision of our family and my mom is the means of our family and I I watched that play out and how that worked so beautifully together and then I would say this too as a woman you I, I believe that if you are a follower of Jesus and you love the Lord you stand up for what is true and um there is a time that I that I believe I don't believe submitting is just agreeing or allowing something to happen if it's against what Scripture says if it's against what the Word of the Lord says to happen. So I don't believe that you should open yourselves to, to blindly. Things. Yeah, to because someone is cl- claims to be like if someone claimed to be I don't know like if Jim said something really if he said something unbiblical and untrue I have a responsibility as a woman. Uh, not as a woman, as a Christian, to to call him out on that and to say something about that issue, and it's not I don't I don't at that point temper what I'm saying because I'm a woman. You know what I mean? Yep. So uh. also think of the, here's 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 where the problem I have with this whole question, and I thought you guys answered it great. Can, can, I don't want to add anything to that. Here's where the bigger issue is: is that if your back is getting up, and you don't have to even be a woman to get your back up when you start hearing this, when your back is getting up. And mine does too sometimes when I hear it, it could be this issue, it yeah. could be about it could be about a race issue, it could be about an injustice issue. When your back starts to get up, that's when I start saying, so are you telling the Bible like what it should tell you? Is that what you're saying? So the Bible says that slavery, let's say, the Bible says that slavery is bad. Oh yeah, I agree with that, so the Bible's right. And then the Bible says this about killing. Oh yeah, I agree with that. Killing's bad, so the Bible's right. And then the Bible says this about women, and you don't like it, so then it's wrong. So who's the one here who's the perfect one who knows the truth? Who is? You. Like, all you're doing, and and me, all I'm doing, if that's me, all I'm doing is I'm the Bible, right? I'm I'm the authority, I'm the standard. Do you realize how screwed up that is? If the Bible tells me something that I don't like, actually, I would argue this. If the Bible never tells me anything that I don't like, I'm in serious trouble. Okay? Think about our culture and how much it's changed. Okay? Which means this. 
things that your parents believed 50 years ago, or your grandparents believed 50 years ago, you think, is, you think are absolutely stupid now. Right? Which means what? Things that you believe now, your grandchildren is going to believe is stupid. Right? And by the way, you'll be the grandparents, and you'll think they're stupid. <laughs> and this is like a... Con- no, but think about this. That is such a common theme. So what actually can stand over grandparents and grandkids? What is it? It's the Bible. So we're all going to struggle to understand it, but if we don't have, like going back to the submit piece, if we don't have a submission to the Word of God, and if you're not willing to be offended by the Word of God, then I should just go, ooh, must be nice to be you, where everything you believe is always right all the time. Do you like people like that? Here's the scary part. Are you like that? So to submit to the Bible... And to submit to what the Word of God is saying, not mindlessly, but mindfully, is the responsibility of all Christians. And if you don't get that, then all you're going to do is take the Bible, you're going to kind of craft it for your own little agenda, just like people who used it to enslave people, just like people who used it to be a feminist or a chauvinist, just like people who will use it to be, you name it, you're just like them. It's just your agenda. And you're no better than them, so don't pretend you're better than them. And that's what we all need to wrestle with. How do we sit under the Lordship of Christ in the Scriptures and get over ourselves and allow ourselves to be taught? Okay, it is 9.30, and there's some some good questions, but I don't want to continue unless you guys want to continue. Should so, we take a break or something? Well, no, go real I think we can just do one more. Okay. Because there's one on, there's one, there's a couple no, on judgment that, um, that, that's keep, that keeps coming up. So it's this idea of, as Christians, what is this judgment, the judgment day? Is this something that we should fear? Is this something that we should be worried about? Is this something that we should look forward to? Um, yeah. Judgment Day, for specifically for believers, that seems to be the oh. common. I was going to say, well, in the past. I'm not worried. I was judged on the cross. Not worried, judged on the cross. I mean, I think that's where that's where it ultimately is. So I'll have a healthy reverence, but since my sins have been paid for, I have zero concerns of judgment. So Jesus Christ coming back is to welcome me, and so God has nothing against me, not because I've done nothing wrong, but because He has said by His own word that He has forgiven me in Christ. So if you ask me, has God forgiven you? My answer is yes. How do I know? Because He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. How do you know that He accepted that? Well, no, literally, He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And I believe that I have trusted my whole sin problem with Jesus. So if you can convince me that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, or that Jesus was lying to me, or that all of these... Then I I would start being worried again. But if not... The judgment has no no fear in, in me whatsoever. What, what would I be afraid of? Hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant? Ooh. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about we talked about the coming of Christ as this, this coming of a king who's coming to establish his kingdom and fight against anything that opposes his kingdom, even, even the kingdoms that I myself may be building. And so on that day, as a follower of Jesus, I can recognize, yeah, selfishly, I, I tend to want to build my own kingdom, and I need to constantly 
remember the gospel and constantly sur- surrender to him and renew my mind in his truth, all those things to, to chase after his kingdom and, and his righteousness and his glory. Um, but, but I can celebrate Christ coming back and putting an end to anything else that I would be trying to build. And I can, and I can, so I can look forward to, so even though, I mean, if you don't think that, that judgment, Jesus is someone to be revered, I mean, read Revelation 1 through 5, at least. I mean, there's, like, when John sees him, John falls down as if he's dead, thinks he's dead. He must be dead because, because of this, this figure that's before him. And, and so, and, and Jesus is there to say, yeah, I'm returning. And when I return, I'm going to right all the wrongs, and I'm going to, and I'm going to, I'm going to take care of business, and I'm going to end all the kingdoms that are opposing my kingdom. And, and so, on that day, it is, it, is, it is something I can celebrate and look forward to because of what Christ has done on the cross, because I've placed this, my faith in, in what He's done. And, but also, at the same time, I can go, yeah, I need, to, I need to look forward to that day to remind me to put to death the, the things that I'm building that aren't of Him. And so that's how I, I view I can I can view that day and how it affects me today, actually. Anything else you guys, you guys would want to add to that? The only thing I would add is to don't let that appease your conscience if you're unrepentant, because that's not what Jim's talking about. We're called to holiness. Mm-hmm. Which is a big word it's a big that word. we will end on. Uh, if you don't know what that means, come ask us. All right. Okay, so, sanctification. Yes. So I went out and said. Same. That makes more That's sense. even bigger. Uh, <laughs> thank you guys for coming. If Again, if you want to have some questions you want further, let us know. Um, we love having you. Great. And stick around, hang out. Starting Ecclesiastes next week. Thanks. Where's your mother? Mark Scott. Mark Scott. says it. Hang out.